Our text this morning is in John 21. We're studying another important scene in the life of the Apostle Peter. As Pastor Steve has been preaching through 1 Peter, I've had opportunity every once in a while to preach on something of Peter's life in the Gospels. And the setting for John 21 is really the final account of John's Gospel, the final story of Jesus, and in this case, seven of his disciples. And I think we should notice first as we begin to get into it that this is kind of a bonus account. John gives us a summary statement at the end of chapter 20 that might otherwise have seemed like that it was the conclusion of the book. But we get this additional account here that's important as we see. Verse 14 says as well in in chapter 21 that this is the third post-resurrection appearance account that John gives us. Others are narrated in the other gospels. This is the third and final one that John has written for us of Jesus meeting with and teaching his disciples after the events of Easter Sunday and the empty tomb. One other thing right before we get into our text is is that there are these two summary statements that are bracketing our passage, and I think they tell us why John wrote his gospel, and I think they particularly are important as we look at our text this morning. Right before the passage, at the end of chapter 20, as I mentioned, John says that he he gives a summary statement there. He says that he's written everything in his whole gospel for the purpose that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. So that's the purpose of his whole gospel, but I think there's a particular uh, emphasis here this morning. And then the bracket at the end of the book... In chapter 21, verse 24, after our text this morning, John gives us the additional statement that he is a first-hand witness, that he's writing all of these words, that his words are trustworthy and true. And so we should notice how these two statements bracket our account, how how they give us the sense of both the purpose of it, that we would believe and by believing would have life in his name, and also that we would see the truthfulness of the words that we'll read this morning. And what, of course, we believe about Scripture is that each word, each account was written for a reason, for a purpose, and these statements, I think, should orient us to the purpose of this account here in John 21. So look with me at John 21. It's on page 769 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles as well. There's a sermon outline. It's on page 8 and 9 in the bulletin. Please read with me from John 21, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. 
Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not broken or torn. Then Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Jesus would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Please pray with me. Lord, we need your help this morning as we come to your word. And so we ask that you would be the one who speaks to us the words that are true. Uh, be with us now as we, as we hear, as we listen, as we contemplate these truths in our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you hear stories about people or you can think of examples of people that you know where there seems to be something a little bit about their life, about their trajectory of their life that doesn't make sense to you. There's some kind of hole in the narrative. There's some key bit of information that you don't seem to know that you can't seem to make sense of someone's life or their story. Um, last season, I can think of a particular Major League Baseball player who was having a, a phenomenal year, just off the charts compared to his previous seven or eight or however many seasons that he played. He was in the All-Star Game. He was the MVP of the All-Star Game. And of course, weeks later, the story came out that he was using performance-enhancing drugs. He'd been caught, and he, the cover-up was sort of sad and ridiculous. But the, all of a sudden, the phenomenal year makes sense, right? He's, he's here all these seven years, and then all of a sudden he has this year. Of course, it's the year right before he's a free agent and el- eligible for a huge contract. But he gets caught. And when they catch him, he's kind of like, well, he caught me. You know, gambling that he wouldn't get caught, that it was worth the risk to get the huge payoff. Well, the point of the story is that there was a hole in the story that we didn't know. And then once we knew that piece of information, then the rest of it sort of made a little bit more sense. And I think the same with, with Simon Peter. Without this story in John 21, uh, we saw him as the one who was denying Jesus, the chief denier. While all the others ran away, yes, but Peter was the chief denier. And then in Acts 1 and 2, we see him as the leader of the apostles and the leader of the early church, the spokesman for the group. Well, how did that happen? How did, he, how did he get there? This is the whole. This is the narrative that we need to know of, about his life to understand the restoration and the gospel message applied to Jesus' heart, in, I mean, to Peter's heart in another way through Jesus that he would be able 
to be that leader in the early church. Uh, we'll get there, but the first part of our text this morning, I think, is, is an important, another proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is telling his disciples something really important, again, showing them that he was alive after he'd been dead. Um, verse 4 Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John referring to himself, uh, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Then they, because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and he did so the same with the fish. I think that we should see this text partly bringing us back to the question of Jesus' identity. And the phrase that occurs to me is his continuity of person. If that's even such a phrase, maybe I just made it up. But it's this idea that, is this the same Jesus? The disciples must have wondered, is this the same Jesus? Certainly, Jesus was different after the resurrection, right? He was living in a glorified body. He was not experiencing the same kind of physical human needs as before, and yet he was in a physical body. He had proven so to Thomas in the previous chapter, yet not limited by the laws of nature in the same ways as before. Much of the veil that had shielded the disciples from his divine glory has now been removed after the resurrection. So the disciples must have wondered, I mean, we sort of take this for granted, but they must have wondered, is this the same Jesus that we knew? How is he different? What does this mean for our relationship with him? What does it mean that we spent three years with him and now all of these other things have happened? How can Jesus reassure his disciples that it's really he who walked with them, who knows them, loves them. Imagine in it this way. If you were best friends with someone, you were very good friends with someone, kind of an ordinary person, you'd shared a lot of life with them and lost touch a bit perhaps, and then you find out that this person that was your friend made it really big. I mean really big, like walked on the moon, sold platinum albums, you know, won Olympic medals, you know, something just huge. And then imagine if this person invited you for dinner. What would you be thinking and feeling? Would they still remember me? Would they still remember the parts of life that we shared? Is my friendship still important to this person? Have they moved on in their big celebrity life without me? I think there's something of that analogy that works here in this scenario. And so what Jesus is doing, he's given proof. He's reassuring his disciples and then by extension us that it really was him. And they seem to get it. You know, John says, it's the Lord. And Peter was quick to run to him. And verse 12 tells us that they knew it was him, but they're also hesitant. They're also unsure 
of what he might do, of how he might relate to them, and how things might now be different. And part of the way that Jesus reassures them is, I think, through, through giving them echoes in this story of other stories in life that he had shared with them. And we hear these, these echoes, these parallel details in this story of other stories that we've heard that are important in the Gospels. First, the call to Peter from Luke 5. We looked at that text in a sermon near the beginning of April, so hopefully it's a bit familiar. If you were here, you recall perhaps that it's the story of how Jesus commandeers Peter's boat and then teaches the people from it. Then he tells Peter to let down the nets and they catch this huge catch of fish. Some of the details are the same here, right? They were up all night. They didn't catch any fish. There was this overwhelming, miraculous kind of harvest of fish. And they recognized Jesus' identity more because of that miracle that had happened. Verse 4 tells us it was very early in the morning. Perhaps they could hear Jesus' voice, but they really couldn't see him. They couldn't tell who it was. But when they find their nets full of fish, and John realizes it's the Lord. It must be the Lord who's there on the shore who's talking to us. And Peter then swims out to meet him. So we see the echoes from Luke 5. We hear echoes from the Last Supper, I think. Jesus invites them to come to a meal. He wants to share a special meal with them. He wants to enjoy that kind of fellowship and intimacy that is gained over time together over breakfast on the seashore. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. He invites them to come and have breakfast. Reminds us of his eagerness to eat the Passover meal with them just hours before his arrest, just days before this account. And I think verse 13 also, in the way it's written, reminds us of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember the story in John 6? Jesus took bread and fish, just five barley loaves and two fish that were a boy's lunch, and he distributed the food so that everyone had their fill, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. In a similar way, Jesus is distributing bread and fish to his disciples, giving them their provision that they need for the day. Do you hear the echoes here? I think it's remarkable the way that Jesus is doing things sort of symbolically, that they would remember. We remember when he fed the 5,000. We remember the Last Supper. We remember when he first called us, and there was this miraculous catch of fish. We could explore each of these events more deeply. The combined weight of them, again, is to prove that this is the same Jesus who taught them and led them all of those years together. He's giving them assurances of their shared history, that he still calls them into service as his disciples, that he loves them, that he wants to spend time with them over a meal, that he provides for them, as he did for the 5,000 and so many others. It's like as if your now famous friend wanted to talk about old times and remembered all of the details of your life and wanted to talk about your shared history and all of the things that you remembered as though things really hadn't changed that much. And what would you feel? You would feel the same sense of assurance that this is your friend and that your life mattered and that your history mattered and that your friendship was important. To this person. Jesus is giving his disciples the same kind of reassurance here 
On the day of Pentecost, as part of Peter's speech to those who gathered, he made it very clear that he had gotten the point that this Jesus, who did all of the miraculous things and who died on the cross, is the same Jesus who has now come back to life. Peter said in Acts 2, 32, as part of his sermon, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Echoing this account here, Peter was calling that crowd to faith and repentance. So also this passage calls us to faith and repentance, doesn't it? It calls us to believe in Jesus and his unique, unrepeatable, and history-changing resurrection. It reminds us that the Easter morning miracle of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of our Christian faith, as it was for Peter, as it was for the early church. We're required to believe this is a fact of history in order that our faith can stand on what the Bible teaches, in order to be believers in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Again, there's a call for us here to see the centrality of the resurrection and for it to be our reassurance too, as it was for the disciples along the shore those many years ago. So think on that. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Has it changed you? We get the general reassurance and resurrection uh, of the resurrection and for Jesus, for his disciples in the first part of the passage, but he has a specific point for Peter. He takes it particularly to Peter in the next section of our narrative in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus had the message for all seven And he had a particular side conversation with Peter. Verse 20 gives us the idea that Jesus and Peter were walking away from the group along the shore and that John was sort of following them at a distance. And perhaps John was following just so that he could write this story down, that he could narrate it for us, that we could be reading it many years later. It's interesting to think about that, isn't it? John was a witness so that he could give us this message And the account, of course, is pretty simple. Jesus is basically asking the same question three times, and Peter is answering the same way three times, and Jesus is giving the same response three times. The pattern of three, of course, reminds us of Peter's denials. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times on the night of his trial, and Jesus is giving Peter three opportunities to recommit himself to Jesus, one for each of his denials. So for every time that Jesus had said, I don't, I mean, that Peter had said, I don't even know the man. Peter is now able to say, and Jesus is calling him to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So the repetition should remind us of that, but we also see some bits of differences in the account, in the responses as they're told. Verse 15 
the first time that Jesus asks, he includes the phrase, do you truly love me more than these? This is kind of an ambiguous statement. Is he saying, do you love me more than these activities as fishing? Do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love me more than these other things? I think that we should remember, I think that Jesus is emphasizing that Peter's proclamation that he would follow Jesus even if everybody else fell away. That Peter put himself on a pedestal to say, even if everyone else follows, falls away, I will not deny you. He, of course, was the one who spectacularly denied him. So Peter has the opportunity here to express repentance for his arrogance and his bravado, for that false sense of security that would make him confident that no matter what anybody else did, he would follow Jesus. And, of course, he didn't. And he thought he was the greatest of the disciples we should, we should recognize that that is part of what Jesus is doing here for Peter. And in verse 17, we read that Peter was hurt, that he was grieved because of the repetition of Jesus' question. It's clear to him, isn't it? His repentance, his true worship, his true affection for the Savior is clear to Peter. And he knows that Jesus knows it, and so why it's hurtful to him. Why is Jesus asking again and again and again? And I don't think that Jesus was trying to be mean, that he was trying to inflict pain needlessly on Peter. I think the issue is for Peter to symbolically make his repentance complete. That Jesus wouldn't let Peter's repentance and Jesus' restoration of him be anything less than complete. And I think he shows that symbolically and comprehensive and finished, that he shows that symbolically by, by doing it three times. Of course, we don't have to ask forgiveness for each time that we sin in the number of times that we've sinned. You know, this isn't a pattern for us to live by necessarily. But I think that's what makes sense of the narrative, is this idea that, that Jesus wants Peter to know that he's got a completely fresh start, that he's fully forgiven, and that he can symbolize that, and that he can show that by saying it three times, even though that hurts Peter's feelings. There's something of the sting of that that's, that's healing for Peter. We should notice also that in restoring Peter, Jesus gives him a new calling, the pastor of the flock of God, to take care of Jesus' sheep. It isn't really a new calling. We remember back from Luke 5 that Jesus told Peter that he would go from catching fish to catching men. But here's a... a the, the image has changed. It's a pastoral one. Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10, and, and the good shepherd is telling Peter, you're my under-shepherd. The way that I care for and nurture my flock, you are called now to care and nurture my flock. One commentator said that Jesus is adding the shepherd's crook to the fisherman's hook. So by hook or by crook, the tasks of the tasks of both he it's a commentator, it wasn't my cleverness. <laughs> that the two tasks of shepherding, of, of making disciples, of of shepherding them along in their journey, and the task of hooking new disciples, of evangelizing, 
And bringing new fish into the fold, so to speak, sheep into the fold, so to speak, is the, is the, the dual task of Peter as a leader in the church. And the task of pastors and the task of Christians. To be both disciple-makers, disciple-making, shepherding, and also evangelizing and bringing in those who were once lost. It's important to notice that Jesus connects Peter's love of him to the task of shepherding his flock. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Jesus uses some different synonyms here for sheep and tending and all of it, but but the the point is is that Peter uh, needs to focus his love for Jesus not just on Jesus, but that the part of the practical expression of that is the way that he would respond to Jesus' commands. If you love me, Jesus said to his disciples, you'll keep my commands. It's the two greatest commandments, right? Love God with your whole being, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus puts them together here. If you love me, Peter, then feed my sheep and do what I've called you to do. The verse goes on to talk a little bit about what will happen to to Peter and John. We don't have time for those details this morning, but I would direct us to the last calling there that Jesus gives to Peter, both in verse 19 and in verse 22. What does Jesus say? Follow me. That's really a summary of what it is to love Jesus and his people. What it is to be a disciple, to follow me. The last command that Jesus gives to Peter is almost the same as the first, right? From the beginning, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. As we think about what this text means for us today, I think the the same command is posed as a question to us for all who would call themselves Christians. For all who say they believe in this same risen and exalted Jesus Christ, will you follow me? Do you love me? Our first and foremost calling is to love Jesus more than anything else. To be committed to him, to be devoted to him. What does that mean for our lives practically? Perhaps it helps us to ask Jesus' question to Peter, the first one, to ourselves also. Do you love me more than these? Not in the sense of comparing our devotion in Christ to other believers, but in the sense of all of the other people and all of the other things, all of the other stuff that might tempt us to love or follow more than Jesus. Are you following your work or your career, your spouse, your 401k, your children, your comfort, your desires, your home, any number of good things? Are you following those things more than you're following Jesus Christ? Are you drawn and tempted to love even good things more than Jesus? Do those things prevent you from following his voice and seeking first his kingdom? And then those other things will be added unto you, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. It's hard to follow Christ, isn't it? By definition, it means that we don't know where we're going. It means we're not leading, we're not in charge. To follow means to let him tell us what to do, to heed his voice over other competing voices. And so I think this passage challenges all of us to ask ourselves this morning, what does it look like for us to be more devoted to Jesus? To love him more, 
to follow him more closely? Would that look for you like trusting him with something that's really difficult? Would it look like praying more faithfully for something that seems impossible? Would it look like pondering his words a bit more deeply throughout the day? What's a practical way that you can think of that you might grow in your love for Jesus? I've given you some examples, but there are many that we could think of of what it means for us to love him, be devoted to him, and to follow him. But our text gives us one such practical example, doesn't it? We saw that Jesus connected Peter's commitment to Jesus with Peter's commitment to Jesus' sheep. John says it this way in 1 John 4, 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's impossible for a Christian to claim to love Jesus while not loving others. Now, certainly, we fail all the time in this calling to love others, don't we? I mean, we choose self so often. We choose what we want rather than what we know the other person needs. And our forgiveness and our repentance is enough. But Jesus is calling us to a life of choosing others, of giving ourselves for them, of feeding his sheep, tending his flock. We consider this morning the challenge and responsibility then to love others, specifically God's people. That's what's in view here. Of course, we have the general command to love neighbor, but specifically what's in view in this passage is that we would love each other in the body of Christ. How can we grow in love with one another here in this body? and in the larger body of Christ as well with other believers, not just those who worship here. And again, I think it's something we can't just will ourselves to do. I mean, it should begin with a desire. We should want to do the right thing. We should want to love and serve others as God calls us to do it. But we're called to ask God to help us to love one another when our patience is exhausted, when our feelings are hurt, When we need to say the hard thing in love and we want to say it in not love. When we disagree and we're passionate about our disagreements. It's a vital apologetic to show the world that the love of God is real in us by the way that we love one another. It's all through the pages of scripture. So our text this morning reminds us of this calling of this challenge, of this responsibility to love one another deeply from the heart, which is part of loving Jesus and part of following him. Brothers and sisters, of course, the good news for us is that he helps us, that he's with us, that the gospel applies to us, that if Peter, the chief denier, can be restored to leadership in the church, we, who fail and deny, can also be restored and are always being restored in the gospel message that Jesus came for sinners, that he loves us. And even when we struggle in unbelief, this passage reminds us of the resurrection this morning, of a faithful witness and many witnesses who told us that truth. The greatest and history-changing event 
of Jesus coming back from the dead, that his victory would be our victory, and that we can live forever with him. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are thankful for the chance to hear your word and to hear the message of forgiveness and restoration so clearly from this passage. We pray that it would continue to change us as your people. 